You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer. And I want to thank all of you for joining us for this episode. Today we'll be joined by Dr. Amy Berg, who is a Vice President of Research and Strategy at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and Alyssa Gentile, who is Director of the Clinical Trial Support Center at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Amy, Alyssa, thank you both for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having us. Yeah, thank you very much um, for the opportunity to share our BDML Master Trial today. Yeah, so I would really like to dive right in. I have to say, I remember in medical school that we treated patients with AML with seven and three, and then honestly, 10 years went by, 20 years went by, and 30 years went by, and the treatment for patients with AML was still seven and three. So with that in mind, it's really exciting to see something new and different. So let me start up by asking you, what is the BEAT AML trial? And then I'd like to find out some about how BEAT AML came into being. Sure. So the BDML master trial is an innovative paradigm shifting clinical trial that brings together multiple medical centers, multiple pharmaceutical companies, a genomic provider, clinical research organization, and of course the FDA, all with the concept of treating patients. The trial puts patients first by matching therapies to patients based on their unique individual genetic profile, all within seven days of diagnosis. Now, first, let me ask you, that's a lot of different groups involved, all very smart people with, with a lot of ideas. What was it like putting this trial together? What were some of the challenges you faced? Sure. So, you know, the trial came together as sort of a bringing together all the multiple stakeholders, and it was sort of a, a stepped process. We first started with bringing together the academic institutions and medical providers gaining the consensus that doing a master trial in AML was the right thing to do. And at the time, we started this in concept in 2014 at the American Society of Hematology meeting in San Francisco. And at that time, there were a number of targeted therapies. We had an understanding of the genetic underpinnings of AML. We knew that it wasn't just one disease, but it was actually multiple diseases disguised as one and treated often as one. And we knew that we had these targeted therapies to these different molecular groups. And so that a precision medicine approach in AML made a lot of sense. After gaining that consensus, we then took the concept to the FDA, harnessed their enthusiasm and their endorsement of the master trial, and then went to the pharmaceutical companies. And at the ASCO meeting in 2015, we had what we call a town hall meeting where we brought together 27 different pharmaceutical companies. 100 people were in the room, including the FDA and representatives of LLS. And we presented this concept to the companies. They were also enthusiastic about that. And that sort of brought all of the pieces together for us. And then when you fast forward, we filed the IND in July 2016 and had our first patient treated in November 2016. And as of today, we have close to 600 patients that have enrolled in the study. 
Well, and I have to say, I read part of your presentation at the ASH meeting, and that was presented last year, I believe. So it looks like the uh, the number of patients has really has risen dramatically. Is that a fair assessment? Yes. I mean, so since this is a really complicated study where we do the genomic analysis at Foundation Medicine and make a treatment decision within seven days, and that treatment decision is also made centrally, it was really important for us to sort of, I'll say, crawl before you walk and walk before you run. Mm -hmm. So we started out with only three sub-studies in the trial at five institutions. And once we could make that work successfully, we then certainly grew casually where we added more and more clinical sites and more and more studies. So now we're at 11 sub-studies at 16 different clinical sites across the country. Absolutely. I mean, how it how exciting and, and, and a testimony to all of you, the incredible work you've done. What are the hypotheses that sort of are driving the study and what are your primary objectives? So our main hypothesis is that we understand that AML is a heterogeneous disease and that it's driven by the seroacquisition of mutations that lead to interpatient heterogeneity, both clinically and biologically. And we also knew that there's evidence of targeted therapies having efficacy in AML and showing benefit to patients. So we made this hypothesis that we could improve patient outcomes by matching the patients to the available targeted agents that are out there. This led to creating this master trial where you screen upon entry into the study. It's an umbrella trial. So the primary endpoint is the feasibility of making a treatment decision within a seven-day period of time. And this is followed by, by going into an individual sub-study where the, the primary endpoint of those studies is the efficacy or the, the complete response within those studies. And tell us a little bit, because I think it's obviously there's a lot of patients enrolling, but sharing this information with oncologists and nurses and other professionals is really important. What are the eligibility criteria, the inclusion, the exclusion criteria? And, and then I'd love to hear a little bit more about how many patients are being screened and how many have been entered. Sure. So our eligibility criteria is quite broad and I'll say rather simple. Um, you must be 60 years and older and have newly diagnosed AML. That's bad. Yeah, that's okay. Makes sense. Who's excluded? We exclude patients, you know, that have isolated myeloid sarcoma, acute myeloprolific leukemia, symptomatic central nervous system involved in AML, and signals of leukostasis requiring urgent therapy, and basically patients that require a therapy immediately and cannot tolerate waiting seven days for treatment. So I have to say that the traditional teaching has been someone's diagnosed with AML, they're started on treatment within, within a few days, or, or they'll die. I mean, that's, that's at least what fellows have been taught, or you, you've got to start right away. What does your data suggest so far? Is that true? Our data so far suggests that, one, we can make a treatment decision within seven days in over 96% of the patients. But more importantly, it also shows that patients can tolerate the seven-day period of time to make this treatment decision. With the data that we presented at ASH and as of still yet today, we've only had seven patients or 2.5% of the overall patients that have died during the seven-day wait period. We learned pretty quickly that the patients that died, the majority of them have MLL as their molecular marker and adapted rather quickly that those patients, once identified, could not wait the seven-day period of time. Their disease progresses quite rapidly and would need to go on to treatment as soon as possible. But for all of the other molecular groups and subtypes of AML, 
they seem to be able to tolerate that. And we feel this is also really beneficial for the patients. They have time to understand their disease. They have time to get their affairs in order and they have time to make appropriate decisions for themselves based on all the information that they have. Alyssa, I want to turn this over to you too. Family finds out, a patient finds out you have acute leukemia. And then let's say they are referred to, to LLS. And what is that first phone call is like? We can all sort of imagine what a patient's experience might be like, but I'd love to hear from you about what you've seen and heard. Sure, sure. So when patients call LLS, they are, you know, they're anxious. Some might call the day they they get diagnosed. Others uh, might be the caregivers that's calling to do their own research. And they look back and they know that that day is just a whirlwind. And so we try to meet them where they're at. So if they need information about what does AML mean? What did the doctor say to me? What are my treatment options? We can meet them and kind of discuss those type of things. If they are interested in clinical trials, that's when they get referred to the clinical trial support center where they can work with clinical trial nurse navigators. And we will discuss um, not only the BAML trial, but also other treatment options that may be available, both in forms of trials and in terms of general uh, standard therapy that's out there. We wanna make sure that we give them the best route moving forward, help them provide some clearness to the situation that's at hand. Cause you know, these people are nervous and they, they don't know what to expect. We discuss second opinions. You know, is this something that's really acute? Is it something that we can talk to them about going to receive a second opinion? And then depending where they're at, we can follow up with them with information on some of our financial support and our educational programs and things like that. So that's both done verbally one-on-one with the information specialists, which are health educators, social workers, and nurses. And then they follow up by email and will continue to do so as much as the patient needs. You have said, this may be an unfair question, but um, of everything that a patient and family hears those first few days, if we call that 100% of what they hear, how much do you think really gets absorbed? What's your opinion? Yeah, so I would say, you know, it, it depends, and I think it depends on their background. You know, do these patients have, and caregivers have a medical background, or do they not? I think that somebody that doesn't have a medical background just working with these patients and their caregivers they probably only absorb about 30% of what's being said to them. We often help them reinforce having notebooks and taking notes and bringing caregivers to their appointments so that they know and and be able to ask appropriate questions. And, And we'll guide some of those questions too if they don't know how to talk to a physician. We'll help give them the appropriate questions to ask the doctors and the nurses. So let me ask, ask both of you, sort of based on that, you know, about the process of uh, so much happens in those, in those first few days. What are some of the, I'll say, concerns, the worries that patients have about a trial, such as beat AML? You know, some of their hesitancies, why they wouldn't want to sign on. Sure. So we know globally that only 5% of patients go on to a clinical trial, and AML is not any different than any other trial in that respect. One of the concerns that we we hear most often from patients is that they are willing to go through the genomic screening, but they're concerned about, well, will there be a treatment option for them? Because traditionally, when you look at a trial and you need to be in a specific molecular group, most patients that screen, they only 30% may have that specific mutation. And so the other 70% can't go on to that clinical trial. 
But the way we've designed the BDMO master trial is we designed it such that patients screen and we have one of seven different or 11 different sub-studies that they can go on with a marker negative group as well. So the marker negative group um, is basically if the patient doesn't have a mutation that puts them in one of the other groups, they go into this group for a broad acting agent. So in that respect, we have a trial that we've established that we have a treatment option for everyone who wants to participate in the trial. But this is a significant hurdle where we have to explain it to patients that there will be a therapeutic option for them if they choose to take it. Let me, from the patient's perspective, ask you about that arm, which is for patients who don't have a marker. Because having a molecular marker, I think a lot of patients would say, wow, I, I hope I have one of those. But for that group of patients, if you would say a little bit about what is that arm, and if a patient were to say, well, wait a minute, shouldn't, you know, wouldn't I be better off getting standard therapy, seven and three, for example, or something like that, or an azacitidine-based regimen? How would you respond to those set of questions? Sure. So the marker negative group is a broad acting agent. So right now we're treating that group with an antibody of CB33 in combination with azacitidine. Um, so in this respect, they are getting azacitidine and it's just something added on to it. But why patients would not go on to 7 plus 3, um, you know, what we find is the majority of the patients don't want to take chemotherapy. Many of them can't tolerate it and don't want the severe side effects associated with the 7 plus 3. Same thing with azacitidine by itself, and that patients are more willing to try and go on to something that's investigational. I think this speaks a lot to the enthusiasm on the enrollment that we have in patients willing to try something different mostly because they don't want to stay in the hospital. They want to be able to go home and they want to be able to do things in their lives that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do if they were taking the standard of care. Alyssa, let me ask you sort of a follow-up to that because I've heard it myself. Talking with patients about clinical trials, sometimes what comes out is, I don't want someone experimenting on me. How do you, you know, if someone asks you that, how, how do you respond? Yeah, so there's a lot of myths out there, I think, about clinical trials, and, and one of the biggest challenges that we have is dispelling some of those myths, and what does that mean? When patients come to us and say, you know, what's the benefit of being on a clinical trial versus not being on a clinical trial, we try to explain what clinical trials are, the different phases of clinical trials, because some patients don't understand, you know, what that means, and how clinical trials you know, every drug that's been out there and that the FDA has approved has been through a clinical trial and that the people that go into these trials should be very well recognized because it is somebody's choice to go into these trials and they may be getting that next best drug before anybody else. And, you know, you you see two different subtypes. You see some patients coming and wanting a drug prior to its approval and trying to get that drug through a clinical trial. And then you see others that are really taking a leap of faith and saying, you know, I want to get into a, a clinical trial and which is the best one for me. The BAML trial, I think, is, is great just because it's got so many different subsets of the trial in it. But I think just education, giving patients the tools that they need in order to make informed decisions can go a long way. Yeah. And, and by the way, I, I totally... I totally agree with you, just even based on my experience, more, more with solid tumors. So the trial launched, it's been a few years, you've got a lot of patients uh, accrued. What, what are some of the findings of the trials so far? What, what have you, uh, Amy, what have you been excited about? I think there's a couple pieces that I've been excited about. One, 
we've been able to show that we can make the treatment decision within seven day period of time. And, you know, to use a next gen sequencing platform to be able to do that within seven days is for us is quite extraordinary. To date, I don't think it's been achieved by any other clinical trial or organization using that type of platform. And it also creates a real paradigm shift for AML patients. But the other piece that we're really excited about is the efficacy that we've seen in one of our studies, it's the IDH2 mutated patients that are treated with enosinib. And the data that we presented at ASH this last December, we showed the data that we had a 44% overall response rate with the majority of that coming from a complete response. It was in 12 out of 27 patients. And this was enosinib taken as monotherapy for newly diagnosed patients, that they were able to just come in, get their pills and go home. And so we feel we're pretty excited about this because this is a real game changer as far as treating AML in, in this patients. Yeah, when you think about patients would be admitted and typically would have been in the hospital, still are being in the hospital for a month to six weeks. Yeah, how amazing, how amazing to take pills. Any arms that have been closed? And let me just ask again, what have you learned from that? So we had one study that was closed. So it's a phase one study with the CD200 antibody from Alexion in combination with seven plus three or standard of care. It was specific for the core binding factor group. And this study was closed due to the changes in priority from the pharmaceutical company. We've learned that, you know, coming from a biotech and pharmaceutical background, you know, it's quite disappointing for all of us when the companies change their priorities. And so being at LLF, we can sort of help mitigate that to some degree, but it is quite disappointing when this happens. For the patients who progress on whatever arm they may be, is there a standard approach in the trial of how that's handled or is that all individualized? It's relatively individualized, but the idea and concept that we've tried to deploy across all of the studies is if patients progress or don't achieve a complete response within a certain period of time, and that period of time can vary from you know one cycle to three cycles to six cycles, depending on the study agent and the mechanism of action. But if they don't get to a complete response and they're continuing to progress, then they can go either onto a combination with azacitidine or they can be removed from study and go on to something else, usually recommended to go on to a different clinical trial. Yeah, yeah. Alyssa, does your group talk to some of those patients about sort of what to do next? Yeah, so if the patient or the caregiver comes to us and, you know, they're looking for additional clinical trials, we often get our patients that say, I, you know, fail my previous treatment or my previous clinical trial, I'm looking for other options. So they'll be assigned a clinical trial nurse navigator, and that nurse will stay with them through the entire journey of trying to find that clinical trial. So we'll look at all the clinical trials that are could be available to them and educate them and give them a list that ultimately we hope that they bring to their provider so that it helps the provider really narrow down the options that the patients are wanting. Is it within a certain area? Is it we take into account their medical history? A lot of our nurse navigators are nurse practitioners. So we really try to get really a holistic view of the patient and their prior treatments and only try to match them to appropriate clinical trials and ultimately they have to bring it back to their physicians to kind of discuss and have options which is very well received by the physicians because they don't have to go through 100 AML clinical trials they might be only having to go through you know 10 or 15 or whatever pops up for that patient we'll help patients connect with certain sites so if they want to go 
to a, a certain site and they're having difficulty connecting with that site, we will be that in-between person so that we can find the appropriate person and do some legwork for them during this time. And, you know, we'll just discuss with them if, you know, the information that we have available for that study, um, what the drug is, if the drug's been approved maybe in other, in other cancers, and any information to really give them the best approach to decide what treatment decision they want to make. Let me ask you more about sort of the emotional journey of it all, because, you know, it's pretty overwhelming. What are the things that patients are sometimes willing to say to you that they may not be saying to their own doctors? Yeah, so, you know, they kind of open up to us. We we do have some time to talk to them, so they will ask us things that they might feel would not be appropriate to talk to their doctors, and we try to emphasize that it is. So we just give them the confidence. Some of those things might be about second opinions. They don't know how to approach that topic with their doctor. So we'll give them some language and really reinforce that second opinions are not bad and try to say, you know, what, why are second opinions, you know, often helpful for not only patients, but their doctors too. Mm-hmm. Doctors mm-hmm. often would very, you know, highly encourage second opinions for their patients. So I think with all of the information that's provided with them, we just try to really support them. And if they are afraid to speak to their office nurse or their their social worker or their doctors, then we'll give them that language and reinforce that it is okay. And these are common questions and they hear these all the time. And if it's maybe it's bringing up, is it better if I just, you know, go on to palliative care and and get quality versus quantity, we'll have that discussion and, and give them some information to discuss with their physician about that as well. Yeah, I have to say I'm impressed with the fact, and, and personally always thankful to LLS, but uh, honestly to have the same navigator, nurse navigator, nurse practitioner and navigator for, throughout the entire process is, is such, a, such a reassuring kind of feeling for people. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. It's and you know we are always available. You know they get their our direct phone number and our email, and we work with them. And you know some people will use us a little bit more than others, and it's very well received because we are essentially holding their hand through this difficult process. Amy, I want to ask you in terms of what happens next with this trial. What's happening next or now? Sure. So we continue to expand. So we are expanding to some more sites. We anticipate expanding up to 20 sites. We also continue to expand by adding additional sub-studies and with a focus on doing novel-novel combinations for these specific molecular groups. So that would be bringing two pharmaceutical companies and their agents together. And we're in the process of basically deploying one of those novel combinations out at our clinical site. So we should have the first one open and available to patients within the next couple months. But also we plan on moving to doing a similar trial in MDS for high-risk MDS, mainly because this is a precursor to AML and we feel it's a logical extension to sort of move these molecular groups a little bit further back and look at high-risk MDS and take the same molecular approach and precision medicine approach that we are in, in AML. How about younger patients? Right now the, the criteria is 60 and above, but how about the 40-year-old uh, with AML? So we have two molecular groups that we're working to move to a younger patient population. This would be the MPM1 group with the FLT3 wild type, as well as the FLT3 mutated group. In both of those molecular groups, we are extending down the age requirement to 18 years and older, 
We're still waiting for the FDA to complete the review of that extension, but we felt confident that we could make this decision to go to the younger patient population because we're actually seeing some activity in the older patients. And based on that activity and that these mutations are more prominent in the younger patient population, we felt that it made sense to do this extension only in those two molecular groups. So So I'll ask you a question, Amy, and then I'll have one for Alyssa too, but you know, it sounds like you have a PhD in pharmacology. What's it like participating in, in this trial, helping design this trial? The more personal side of it, you know, what's it like for you? For me, as I said before, I come from a you know, pharmaceutical background where I actually worked in solid tumors. When I came to the society, you know, it was really a nice connection. People work their entire lives in the pharmaceutical industry to get a drug approved. And some are lucky to have had those successes, but majority probably don't. And unless you have that success and can get connected to a patient in that way, you never really feel that connection. And when I came to the society 10 years ago, I instantaneously realized that I was connected to patients in a way and have impact in ways that I never could have achieved before. And for me to work on the BDML trial, that just sort of drives that passion for wanting to have an impact on patients and improving their lives and helps me achieve the goals of why I even went into drug development to begin with. And thank you for sharing it. I think it actually, you know, you're sharing a probably a sentiment that many people in pharmaceuticals would say the same thing. So, you know, I want to give a lot of credit to the pharmaceutical companies, to the basic scientists whose efforts really have gone on to bring all these drugs forward, and then to the clinicians as well for collaborating and making all this possible. Alyssa, same thing in terms of your work and what it means to you. Yeah, so, you know, being at the nurse at the bedside, one of our most common questions is, do you miss being a nurse at the bedside, physically touching the patient, putting the IV in? And, you know, if you ask most of our nurses on the on my team, it's, it's no, because you feel more connected with these patients and their caregivers through the job that we have. We don't just take care of them for a couple hours or three days or seven days, depending on what type of background you come from. You take care of these patients for months on end and you can help advocate for them and throughout the entire journey. And it it really does change patients' thoughts and views of, you know, this difficult situation that they've been able to be put in. So for me and with, you know, the close families and friends that I've had that have been affected by cancer, every person will come to me and say, is there somebody like you that does this for breast cancer? Is there somebody like you that does this for neuroblastoma? And in those situations, you know, we can help, you know, personally, I can help them. But uh, we are all the nurse navigators here at LLS have a in-depth background of blood cancers. And so we are able to really give a full roundabout care to these patients. And so we help advocate these other friends and families that help, you know, come to us for this. And it's hard, you know, because we want them to be able to have people like us because it has been so helpful for these patients and their caregivers. All right. Very, very briefly, let me just check in with both of you. If a patient, family member, or physician wants to self-refer or be referred to the BEAT AML trial, how do they make contact with LLS? 
Patients can call LLS, the Information Resource Center, to find out information on the BAML trial, and you, they can do that by calling 1-800-955-4572, and that's where the information specialist will work on that with them one-on-one. You also can visit the website, www.lls.org, and you can get on the BAML site from there. They have a whole page dedicated to the BAML trial. They also have email and chat online as well if you, you know, get into the www.lls.org site and all from there they can direct you in the right direction and if patients and caregivers need help enrolling or more information about the trial, the Information Resource Center will connect them with a nurse navigator if it's appropriate. Alyssa, so by the way, both as a physician and as a as a husband, I've gotten to see sort of the wonderful services from LLS provided to patients and, and to my own family. So if you would say a little bit in the clinical trial support service that you provide, what would be the services you would provide from the day of diagnosis all the way through? Yeah, so we encourage patients and caregivers to really think about clinical trials from day one, even if it's not the choice that they go with, just the education around clinical trials, being newly diagnosed to relapse and refractory for lymphoma, leukemia, and myeloma. And we'll work with them and discuss clinical trials options that they might have at any cross journey that they are in their treatment line. And we'll, like I said before, provide them with a list of clinical trials that are most appropriate to their particular situation because no two patients are the same and work with them through that entire journey. And we often get our patients that come back to us for a second clinical trial. You know, we'll work with them, get them into a clinical trial. They'll finish that clinical trial, and then they'll unfortunately have to be in line for another clinical trial. And at that point, clinical trials change. Not only do they open and close, but they also, molecular markers might change or their status might change, and we have to, you know, find what would be most appropriate at that point in time. Good. I also want to ask about other blood cancers. This is such an incredible study that you're doing and such great navigation that's available to patients. Are the same type of services available for patients with other blood cancers? Yeah, we deal with all blood cancers, all leukemias, all lymphomas, all multiple myelomas. So any type of blood cancer that a patient has, and if they have questions about the blood cancer or anything around that, then they can contact the Information Resource Center. This is Dr. Ken Miller. Today we were joined by Dr. Amy Bird, who's the Vice President of Research Strategy at LLS, and Alyssa Gentile, Director of the Clinical Trial Support Center at the LLS. So I want to thank both of you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. This was a pleasure. Great. Also, I want to say a thank you, a personal thank you. So I do believe we're going to beat AML. And I want to say thank you. My wife, Joan, was treated, and it's actually 20 years ago for AML. And LLS was a incredible support then to us personally at really a, such a tough time and good doctors and good medicine and we've been fortunate. So a 20-year thank you to all of you and to my colleagues as well. So this is again Dr. Ken Miller. You've been listening to Treating Blood Cancers and LLS podcast series for professionals. 
Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.